Good afternoon and welcome to another episode of Art Blog Radio. This is another episode in the First Friday series. I'm super glad to say that right now we're sitting in the middle of Stanek Gallery as the installation for their First Friday show is taking place. And I'm very honored to be sitting with the extremely talented Carson Fox. Welcome to the show, Carson Thank Fox. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so Carson's going to have a show here on Friday, the first Friday in July, called Splendiferousness. And if you've never seen Carson's work, it is truly, truly a beautiful sight to behold. Carson, can you tell us a little bit about your work that's, uh, that's going to be here at the gallery? Well, they're going to be, um, there's going to be a large installation um, that's going to be in the back part of the gallery called Gold Rush. And then throughout the rest of the gallery, they're going to be standalone sculptures and a couple of uh, wall pieces that kind of bridge the gap between sculpture and um, painting, I suppose. They'll be dimensional yet on the wall. So That's amazing. I'm, I'm absolutely smitten by your use of color, by your use of texture, by your use of, by your use of shape and form. So what, what got you into sculpting, and especially sculpting with resin? You know, it's, it's funny, because I've always, always worked with materials that I really just fell in love with the materials themselves. And um, probably about, oh gosh, maybe 10 years ago, I started working with resin. And I thought, you know, I'd used a lot of different other materials for different projects, and I thought, okay, this will cycle out at some point, and um, I'll move on to something else. But I never did because I just like every time I make something with resin, the, the, the color that I'm able to get out of it is just always it just always surprises me. It always excites me. And so for now, I mean it's just like I'm married to it for the moment. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't say that, but yeah, I'm married to someone to a person. I've been married for him for a long time. But the, the materials, you know, they don't get the same commitment, I suppose. <laughs> But, you know, it's been a long time, and, um, yeah, it's just, it's the color that I can get out of it. It's just extraordinary. No, it makes sense. The, the color is, the colors are so vibrant and so brilliant. Like, I'm, I'm really taken by the works that I'm seeing around me now. Uh, so for those of you who are listening, there, the work is being installed currently, and there are works on pedestals. There are sculptural works on pedestals, but there are still works that are to be installed later, um, and so I'm just, I'm getting a, a nice preview of the beauty that's going to be here on Friday. So your work centers um, imprints on the individual. Yes. And, and so can, can you explain what you mean by that, like on yourself as an individual or just on people? Well, it's interesting because it, the, the work has continued to change over the years. And um, initially it was very much, the, the entry point for me was always some kind of object that had some relationship to my own, um, to my own life. So something that, it, that, that symbolized something that happened in my life um, that had this direct relationship that was meaningful to me. It might not necessarily translate to the viewer in the same way, but for me that was like my first investment in making the work. What I found in the next in the, in the last couple of years is that that's started to change. And um, instead of making things that are recognizable objects, like I used a, a lot of uh, 
materials or I made a lot of sculptures that directly referred to crystals and um, different kinds of uh, rock formations. And I made some things that look like coral formations and um, grasses and um, so, so things that would always have some kind of entry point in reality. Recently, it's just started to change. And um, I had a show about a year ago, which was very transitional in terms of that change. Things started to become less recognizable, much more abstract, much more formal, um, kind of lumpier, if you will. <laughs> and I, honestly, I felt it, found it really disturbing. I was like, oh, God, I don't know what's happening. You know, what's going on? But, you know, I've been working for a long time, and I've learned that... Um, I always go wrong if I don't trust my instincts, and that I just have to have faith in that. And so at a certain point, it was giving me a lot of trouble. And at a certain point, I just said, come on, let's just cut that, all this belly aching out <laughs> that I was doing in the studio, and just let's, let's run with it and see where this goes. And so this is the first show that I've had that is almost um, entirely abstract and entirely built on a kind of formal reaction to the materials and the colors. And so wow. it's a big change for me, actually. Um, yeah, and I'm so excited to do it here. Wow, I, I think it's beautiful. Well, thank you. I think it's beautiful. Thank and you. To have a departure from your usual work and to have it be so amazing is like. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that's, that. That's I really, really do. Wonderful. I really do. Yeah, that's amazing. So, what got you into sculpture first? Like, what, what was your first time really getting into sculpture? It was in graduate school. I, I went to um, the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, and I fell in love with printmaking, and um, particularly etching. Mm. And so that was really my main focus for a really long time. And then I went to graduate school at a place that was really different. I went to Rutgers. And, and the, the program itself was really different than PAFA, which is, is um, at the time when I went, it was very much divided in different kinds of disciplines. You were a printmaker, a painter, a sculptor, etc. At Rutgers, it was all about just finding the material that would communicate the idea best. And there were no divisions between, you know, different camps of, of materials. And we were encouraged to make videos or to do performance or, you know, it didn't matter. So when I went in, I started making prints and I, and I found myself thinking about sculpture and... Um, thinking, okay, I'll try this and I'll try that. And, and then I realized there was this really strong alliance between printmaking and sculpture, at least in terms of the way I was approaching it. It being very um, uh, step-oriented, um, thinking about something and having to solve the problems to get it to be constructed and made. It's really similar to printmaking. And um, as time has gone on, I mean, I still make prints, and uh, I love printmaking, but I've found sculpture has really just started to dominate things. Not started, it's been dominating things for a while now. Um, I finished graduate school in 1999, so 20 years ago, um, I've been really intensely making mostly sculpture as my primary thing. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. So these, these are all... All the ones that I see here are about three feet and less, mm -hmm. three feet or shorter. Mm -hmm. Do you make any larger scale work? I have. And you know what's funny? These are so heavy. Um, <laughs> I've had to implement a rule in my studio that I can't make anything that I can't carry. Oh. And I have one piece of sculpture that's sitting on my floor. 
that I can't work on anymore because <laughs> it's so heavy. I can't lift it up. I can't move it. I can't do anything with it. I feel like I'm, I'm terrified it's going to fall on my foot and shatter my oh. foot. And so it's like we're all wrapped up in the corner. And that was that was a, that was a lesson that I learned. I was like, you know, I can't be dependent upon somebody coming to my studio to move my sculpture for me. It's just ridiculous. So um, the scale has a little bit to do with that, but. Um, it also is a, is a shift because what I was making before was primarily installations, and the installations themselves would be made of really small components, hmm. hundreds and thousands of really small components that wow. I put together to create something much larger. And um, the standalone sculpture is relatively new in terms of my production. So, you know, it's... it's um, it's, uh, it, I, I never premeditate anything, honestly. There's never truly a plan. Um, so I didn't plan to make everything this size, but that's how things kind of shook out. And uh, here we are. <laughs> <laughs> and it's wonderful. Thank Absolutely you. wonderful. So with the installations that you said you were making before, mm -hmm. you said you put a lot of small pieces together. Yes. What were these installations like, if you can describe them? I started first making... Um, well, I started first making installations of silk flowers. Wow. And um, initially my idea was I was looking at, I was really moved by roadside memorials mm. and, um, and how long they were maintained and the kind of need people had or seemed to have um, with no art background to create something in the wake of a great loss. And at the time, um, I went through a period where my, my mother-in-law and my mother and my father, they all died within the same year. Oh. And um, it, was a, it was a really tremendously bad year. But, um, well, thank you, thank you. Um, but uh, I started thinking about that. I started thinking about flowers in terms of memorials. And so I started making these installations with silk flowers. And then I think it was because I, I wanted to, to do this particular public art project. And um, I applied for it, and they said, well, we can't possibly use silk flowers. That's ridiculous, because they're just, they, they won't, you know, how do we clean them? How do we maintain them? And, and they were right, you know. It wasn't something that could withstand um, all kind, you know, all kinds of abuse that, that would happen in a public space. And so I started playing around with plastics, because um, I always liked plastics, and, um, or resin, I should say. And um, I started making the flowers in resin. And I had had these little, these, these funny little um, tiebacks from the 1930s. And they were like little flowers that were, that were hammered out of tin that they made on little pins. And you could pull your curtain back and like stick that into the wall and that would be mm. your tieback. And so they were these cheap little things. And I had a collection of them just because I liked them. And I started looking at them thinking, hey, I could, use, I could make those. I could make flowers that were on pins that I could put in any kind of configuration. And so um, that's where it pretty much started. I also was in a tiny studio, like a studio the size of, um, it's hard to even exaggerate how small the studio was. It was horrible. It was when I first moved to New York, and it was like the size of a tabletop, you know, basically. Oh With, it had a window in it. And, um, and I had to figure out something I could make mm. that could then become something bigger. And so yeah. that kind of started me thinking about things in smaller pieces that would then become a larger whole. And so from the flower installations, there were installations that um, basically where, it, it, 
the, it would be like the cross-sections of trees, so these sort of round shapes I was putting up with magnets. Um, and then I've been making installations with coral on the wall itself, or, or forms that, you know, reminiscent of coral. And, um, and so those, those were primarily things that I was making in small pieces that would then comprise this larger whole. And I really liked it, and I still, I still do it, but one of the reasons I really liked it is because of the, the interaction of the architecture as well. So it wasn't like I could just plan this thing without having this conversation with the space. And so that was really an interesting sort of challenge for me too. So every time I reinstall, it's something new in a different space. And I like that idea of it always being changeable. That's exciting. I, that's something that I love about certain installations mm -hmm. too, is that they become new works, even though they have the same name. They right. become new works yeah. wherever they're installed. So that's I think that's really cool. That's really great, and also a great use of space when you have a smaller art studio. Mm -hmm. So getting back to the show that you're doing here, Splendiferousness, I absolutely love the title. Oh, thank you. So what what was your uh, driving force behind calling the show that? Well, I liked I liked the ridiculousness of the name. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, like it's like a tongue twister, right? And um, so that immediately appealed to me. Um, but also, I you know I I'm hung up on um, beauty, and it wasn't it wasn't beaten out of me in graduate school as hard as they tried. <laughs> and believe me, they tried. Um, it's just something I return to. I want to make things to uh, I want to make things that give you a strong visual impact first. And then the mm. secondary response is thinking about what it means and um, you know how how it might remind you of something from your own life, that kind of thing. But the first impact I want to be this kind of falling into uh, a lake of um, I don't know of, of non-existence. You just fall mm. into a color. You fall into uh, that kind of magical state of beauty, and that's what I'm always after. You know, whether or not I achieve it is the another question. But in the studio, <laughs> I'm always after that. I'm always after that moment where I go, "Oh my God, <laughs> this is fantastic!" And um, you know, and then I pursue that. But um, you know, ultimately, that's at, at the core. I'm I'm just always chasing that. That's wonderful. I, I too am a fan of ridiculousness. So I <laughs> So I, I appreciate that that was the, what part of the driving force behind you choosing that title. So thank you for sharing that. So your show, it explores notions of transience, continuity, and the passage of time. Can you explain how these works embody that? You know, a lot of the works still reference um, rocks and minerals, and mm -hmm. um, or at least in my mind they do. And... That was a kind of a continuation of a theme that was throughout all of my work. So, um, in thinking about the formation of coral reefs over thousands of years, um, the formation of minerals um, over, again, thousands and thousands of years, I'm having that in the back of my mind and then creating this artificial sort of construct of time. Um, was something that I was, that, 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 that I was playing around with, thinking about. Um, so, you know, that's always something that is in my, in my periphery, the idea of um, my time being recorded within the object itself, mm. and objects themselves as being these sort of material timekeepers. So you think about, 
you know, the way nature builds things and how it reflects a certain amount of time. Um, I think about, in the studio, building things myself and that being a way of almost proving that I've existed in this frame of time. Mm. Um, so I, that, that's, that's, that's the relationship. You know, a lot of these things are often for the artist in their head, and it's something that you think about while you're making the work, particularly if it's really labor-intensive. Um, whether or not it translates to the viewer, um, I'm not sure, but um, for me, I'm always the person that I'm, I need to please first. And um, so in the studio, these personal kinds of themes are really important to me. What I want from the viewer, though, is just for them to bring their own responses and reactions to the works itself and for them to be able to stand on their own without any real explanation, mm -hmm. um, except for their existence. So. That's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So you're also an arts educator. I am. And you've taught at several different universities mm -hmm. and schools. So what, what drives your education practice? Well, you know, I, I fell in love with teaching at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts. I, I finished there, and then um, I went on, I got a traveling scholarship, and I went on that, and then I had a year where I was doing residencies and things. And then they gave me a job as the, um, the shop manager of the printmaking area. And I did that for about a year, and after about a year, um, an etching class came open, and they gave that to me. And so I started teaching, and I was um, amazed at how much I loved it. It was really wonderful. And the students, particularly at PAFA, were fantastic. At, you know, I'm sure they still are, but at the time, I was just, it was just such a great sort of exchange with other people who were just so excited about learning. And, um, and that made me exciting too, and it made me realize this was a vehicle for me to extend my own education on and on and on and on. And so um, I thought, okay, I really love teaching. Well, I can't teach on the college level anywhere else but PAFA um, unless I get a master's degree. So I went on and got a master's degree, and I taught all through my MFA, and then it just led to more teaching. Um, I taught at PAFA for 12 years, and, but simultaneously I was also teaching at NYU, and I wow. taught at Rutgers, I taught at Harvard, I taught at a whole bunch of different wow. places, like run and run and run and run all around yeah, the place. Yeah, four different states, <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, and um, yeah. finally I, I um, ended up uh, with a tenure track position at Adelphi University, which is in Long Island, and it's a short commute for me from Brooklyn. And Great. I've been there for 13 years now, and Wonderful. it's um, yeah, it's 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 been a nice, it's, it's a beautiful situation because in, in Brooklyn, you know, it's very urban. I go out to Long Island. It's it's uh, it's gorgeous. We have this beautiful campus, little rabbits hopping around. <laughs> sort of nice. counterpoint, yeah. yeah, where it's very, very quiet and, um, you know, it's just it's sort of a beautiful spot to be. So so I've been there and, um, yeah, I love education because it, 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 you can't stop educating yourself Absolutely. to be relevant or interesting or to keep yourself interested. So for me, I'm always having to um, investigate new artists to teach X class and, mm. you know, I, I'm you know, it, it just continues to um, engage me intellectually, so I love it. 
That's wonderful. What subjects do you teach? I teach primarily printmaking. I run the printmaking area at Adelphi. But I also teach a course, I've taught a number of courses, but I, I teach a course called Emerging Artist Strategies, which is for wow. our seniors. And it's all about um, the business end of the art world and what the students Amazing. might need. It, you know, it's the course that I always wanted, honestly, <laughs> I was that I, was never, that I never got. Yeah. And so it was great to get into the situation where I could propose this course. And it was so, it's still so satisfying, because I can relay information that I know that they're not going to get any way else unless you know they go through this period of time after school where you have to do all this research, you have to figure exactly. all of this stuff out for, your, for yourself. Absolutely. And, um, and so it's really satisfying to be able to to, to give that to my students. But um, yeah, so that's what, another course. I used to teach a course called Art Today, which was all about contemporary art practice. And so mm. I would bring in a lot of um, visiting artists to talk about their work and what they did in the studio and how they sustained their lives. Wonderful. And, um, and that was a fun course because I, I, I used New York as my um, textbook, essentially. So it was all living artists who were making work at that moment um, that I could have access to. Um, and having that resource was really exciting, too. That's great. That's what I'm so glad to hear all of this, especially the emerging artist strategy. Mm -hmm. So um, in conversations that I've had with a lot of artists, that seems to be the thing that often when we're going through our arts education that we miss, that right. we miss out on, is how to survive after we leave school, how mm -hmm. to survive as artists, how to survive when negotiating around our work making our work so that we can live off of our work. And yeah, it's, so a, I'm glad, it's I'm really tricky. Glad. It's very It's a tricky, tricky. balance. It, it can be, absolutely. Educationally, it's a tricky balance, too, because I come absolutely. up against other educators who are very much against putting that into the curriculum, and I understand mm. why, because, because they want to concentrate on um, making people into artists, not business people. But the problem is, is you can't, I mean, unless you have other means, Right, which a lot of people in the art world do, <laughs> but unless you have those other means, then you are confronted with the fact that, like you know, if I don't sell things, I don't get to make more work because yeah. I can't pay my rent, I can't pay for materials, um, I can't pay for the babysitter that needs to watch my kid. You know, I can't pay yeah. for anything, so I'm sitting at home, you know, crying into my pillow at night. <laughs> <laughs> if I can't figure this other end of things out. And so it's, it's, it, there has to be a balance. Absolutely. And so I try to keep that in mind with my students because I don't want to make them, uh, the, if they were really great at business, they would be business majors, right? If I were really great at business, I would have been a business major. Um, you know, what I primarily love is making art. But th this other stuff that I've learned along the way that's been really hard won, you know, I want to save my students some of the, the anguish. Yeah, that, the heartache. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I, I hear that, and I'm I'm really happy that you're doing that. Like that's really, that's an amazing thing to add to like your social practice as well as your art practice to be able to teach folks how to not have to go through that anguish, like you said. Yeah, and to to point out that there are real resources out there for artists. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I've had a lot of conversations with artists about how sometimes you have to look at yourself as a business, like yeah. as an individual business when you're doing marketing or when you're making things. And so I'm, I'm really glad that you're doing that emergency. Yeah, I mean, whether you like it or not, if you're a dancer, if you're a writer, if you're any kind of creative, you're in business for yourself. You're a small business yep. person. And, um, Absolutely. you know, you have to look at, look at taxes and all kinds of unpleasant stuff. But, you know, you have to. 
<laughs> There's no yeah. way around it. Exactly. Yeah. There, there really isn't. So that's that's wonderful. That's those students are very very lucky to get that as part of their arts education. Uh, so, do you have any advice for any future artists or any words of wisdom that you can give to young listeners that are out there just breaking into the art scene? Well, I I often tell my students who are just finishing school that their 20s are going to be the most frustrating and difficult period <laughs> of their lives because um, I think it's true. Um, you don't get paid enough when you're in your 20s. Um, usually you're working like two or three terrible jobs, right? Just to make things... <laughs> you know, ends meet, and then you're trying to make artwork on top of that, yeah. and it's so hard, and I find that that's when people mostly drop off because it gets too overwhelming. So I think that um, uh, someone gave me some good advice when I was a student at that point in time, because I, I was, you know, on the same track, you know, just working all the time, feeling really, um, feeling, feeling like I was losing sight of what I really wanted to do, and he said, you know, just keep your hand in it. Just have a sketchbook, have something. Always be doing something, even if it's really, really small, so that when you do, when time does open up, you are ready to go, you're ready to jump in. But I also recommend um, looking at your time really carefully and scheduling things. Absolutely. And um, I schedule every inch of my life, which um, is kind of oppressive. <laughs> <laughs> but it's necessary. I've got, you know, because I have a certain amount of time in the studio. When I cross the threshold, I've got to hit the ground running. I've got to know exactly what I'm doing because I only have so much time to do it. Absolutely. And um, if I don't think about it in advance, you know, I don't have the luxury of sitting in a chair and staring into space and drinking tea. I don't <laughs> have that. You know, I've got to know yeah. what I'm doing. So I'm thinking about my work all the time. And so that's, that's what I'd recommend to young people. Just think about your work all the time figure out when you're going to do it, budget the time for it, and if you don't have a lot of time for it, just do small things and just keep at it until things start opening up for you. Because they will. They will. Absolutely. But it's, God, it's a, it's a hard road. Yes, it is. It absolutely is. Thank you so much for sure. your words of wisdom. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. This has been a really, really <laughs> great experience. I really enjoyed learning about your art practice and getting to sit here surrounded by these really wonderful works oh, that thank you have you. here. Looking forward to the opening on Friday. For those of you who are listening, the show will be open from July 5th, which is this Friday, and until August 10th of 2019. So come check it out between July 5th and August 10th. That's splendiferousness, by, <laughs> which is a little bit tongue-tying, by Carson Fox, super talented, super brilliant artist. Um, and many thanks to Stanek Gallery for allowing me to come here to record this podcast episode. And uh, if you're looking to listen to this podcast, you can go to Art Blog, or you can go to Apple Podcasts, or you can go to Spotify. So it'll be available on all three platforms. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you again to Carson. And uh, have a great day, everyone. Bye, y'all.